What does Evo Morales mean to you as a Bolivian? Evo Morales, para muchos, Evo Morales para mí, for para me and for many others, represents identity. identity. Meaning, he's a clear representation that wherever you come from, with effort, you can achieve what you set out to do and you can change people's perceptions. As long as you have your identity, and that is that you never forget who you were, who you are, and where you come from. That's just a taste of an interview we're really excited to share with everyone today. It's been a little while in the making. We did this interview originally in Spanish and then had to dub it into English. We might post the original Spanish version as well for Spanish-speaking listeners. But this is an interview with my friend Alejandra. She's a Bolivian from the La Paz area, and she lived through last year's coup, through the election last November, through everything that's happened since, and through the most recent election where Evo Morales' movement towards socialism party reclaimed power in Bolivia's liberal democracy. Alejandra shares some great insights as a mother and an average working class person in Bolivia. We talk about the events since Bolivia's election, the role of the OAS in the United States, and we talk about what Evo Morales means to poor and working class Bolivians. We're definitely going to be keeping our finger on the pulse of international and Latin American socialist movements on this show. So stay tuned for more and enjoy this interview. Talking to Alejandra, she is a member of the MAS, the Movement Towards Socialism Party in Bolivia. She lives near La Paz, near the country's capital, and she is uh, quite happy today with the recent victory of the MAS in the elections. But maybe I should let her speak for herself. Uh, how are you this morning, Alejandra? Bien, muy bien. Bueno, good, very good. After the elections, every morning seems full of joy and happiness. The sun comes out again. Life smiles at us again. Lots of socialists and progressives here are also very happy. Uh, how are things where you are around La Paz currently? Well, now there is a town's call. There are still groups that are announcing that they have evidence of a new alleged fraud, which is not true. International organizations have already said everything has been clean and transparent. But apart from that, we are entering a new change again. We are very hopeful and very happy that things are going well. You said the opposition is claiming there's fraud. The opposition actually controls the government now. How does that work exactly? How is there fraud if they are controlling the process? Exactly. It is something illogical. We are entering a new electoral game with their rules. They have chosen their best players. They have appointed the referees of the match. Let's say it like that. And well, the results have come out against them. But still, some say that there has been a new fraud. They say that we all made a plot, that there are interests involved. Well, very illogical things. But we think that it is the hate they feel that makes them say those things. They think it's all some big conspiracy. Exactly. Now they want to blame everyone. The right wing in Bolivia has always been like this. They blame each other. They have never been able to unify. Today, we have gone through a pandemic. And with the social conflicts of the last year, we have gone through very difficult stages. And our economy is once again on the ground. And what we need now is to lift it. Well, it's been less than a year with the country's right wing in power. Unfortunately, you're in a deep hole now. 
But what's the feeling towards the current president, Anya's, around where you are in the pods? Probably not so good. She's not really popular anywhere in the country. Sure, Anya has risen to power in an irregular way. They all had the opportunity to demonstrate everything that they say the right can achieve, but they did not. The management during the period has been plagued with corruption and it has been plagued with clear signs of racism. In her statements, in her attitudes, she has been plagued with covering up those who have been committing acts of corruption. Not just corruptions, it has covered up the military and the police who have killed people in the past year. So many say that we hate them, that now we are going to prosecute them, but it's not a question of persecution and hate. It is a question of justice. I wanted to ask, what role do you think the military will play in the Arce government? Because they didn't seem like a threat to the Morales government. But at the first moment that his power didn't seem secure because of pressure from the OAS, from Añez and the Bolivian right wing, they betrayed the government and Morales was forced into exile. So does Arce trust this institution? Is he going to change something? What do you think is going on there? Well, Arce hasn't said it openly, but we know that now we no longer have confidence in these groups, nor in the police, nor in the military command. Obviously, Arce is going to try to do the same thing that Evo Morales did when he first assumed his government back in 2004, which is to reveal the image of the armed forces. At the time, the military and the people were enemies because the military at the time had committed the October massacre and all of that. Then, the military represented all the wars for Bolivians and thanks to Evo Morales it was possible to change the image of the military, making them actively participate in social issues, such as the delivery of family funds, as well as collaborating with the situation that happened, for example, in the Chiquitina fires last year. Morales tried to remake the image of the military. I think Arce will try to do the same. This is a process that Arce will try to implement in this upcoming five years. He will try to make it happen. There isn't 100% trust in them, but you can't turn your back on them and ignore them. Yes, of course every state needs a military, but you have this relationship with the government that is, put simply, complicated. It's going to be complicated, as I told you, clean up their image. First, I think it's going to be very hard to do justice. All of those who participated in the Senkata and Sakaba massacres will have to be prosecuted. Only then will the population know that justice is being done and that trust can be revealed between these two groups, right? Uh, militaries obviously play a big role historically in coups in South America and Latin America, so it's a difficult problem. Lots of power in the military. Uh, switching gears slightly, what is your opinion of these two people your country has just elected, Luis Arce and uh, Vice Presidential Candidate David Chocahuanca? How do they compare to Evo Morales and what's their relationship with him? Everyone has a great relationship. Everyone calls each other brothers. Arce has been Evo's trusted man for a long time. He has been Minister of Economy. Their relationship is good. And with David, it's the same situation. Evo also chose David. David even now leads a life in the country. Obviously now he's going to have to leave it to get 100% in his management, but they have a great relationship, and Luis Arce said that he's not going to prevent them from returning. 
David Chocobanca is also indigenous. He's Aymara, like Evo. Sure, he's also from La Paz area, by the lake area. He has his origins there, his community and all of that. Do you think that Bolivia is on the same path with uh, Luis and David as it was with Evo? Maybe it's possible to start industrializing the country again, as was Evo's plan, using lithium to make cars and batteries in the country. Exactly, that is now the point at which Arce is focused. Just as in Evo's time, it was the nationalization of gas. Now Lucho Arce is focused on the nationalization of other industries and everything you mentioned about lithium. What does Evo Morales mean to you as a Bolivian? Evo Morales, para muchos, Evo Morales para mí, para for muchos, me and for many others, represents identity. Identidad. Meaning, he's a clear representation that wherever you come from, with effort, you can achieve what you set out to do and you can change people's perceptions. As long as you have your identity, and that is that you never forget who you were, who you are, and where you come from. With your effort, you can be someone better and make your environment better. Evo arrived as president at a stage in which we Bolivians had lost a lot, and we had practically lost faith. We had resigned ourselves to being a country that will always be asking for help and aid, and Evo showed us that it didn't have to be like that, that we were capable enough to achieve things through our own effort. He showed us that we did not have to look elsewhere, as if for a savior who will lift us out of misery and poverty. He showed us that together we can achieve it, and that is what happened, and that is what the right wing does not admit. It does not enter their head, and they want to denigrate us again, to make us feel again that we need international aid to reach out to the IMF again. It is not like that. We have the resources, we have the courage to be ourselves. You talked a bit about the IMF. The Añez government took out a loan. Is it possible that the government just goes, no, these debts aren't ours? Do you think anything like that could happen? Well, obviously ours is not going to be able to wash its hands and say, no, I did not do this. No, I did not answer for this. Ours's plan is to pay for Anya's debts, so that in a short time we will not have these debts and we will not acquire them again. That is what Evo Morales did. With the nationalization, Morales achieved a very low level of debt from international loans, and we were able to achieve stability. Like anyone who contracts debt, you have a debt, and obviously you are paying it, but it represents a flight. It is the same with the country. Those debts are going to be a drag on the economy, and in this case, the IMF is determined to subjugate to their whims, to what they want. So what ARSA plans to do is that with the new economic measures, it is possible to pay these debts that have been acquired in the Anis government, and then return to being the owners of our resources, so as not to be rendering accounts or reaching out to the IMF. It always seems to be the plan with these right-wing Latin American governments. They ask for these loans from the IMF. For the sake of transnational corporations and, and transnational capital, and it disallows them from building up the economy and, and nationalizing things and, and really doing what is best for the country. I mean, they're basically turning their back on their country in favor of these international corporations. Exactly. It is what the right wing always aims at and is what they do. Anything else you'd like to say as a Bolivian to the people of the United States and the world? First, as a Bolivian, and now with clear evidence, there was never electoral fraud. Last year, there was no fraud. 
ever won the elections, the right wing did not want to accept it, and they created an unnecessary social convulsion. And with it, they created a lot of pain, because there were deaths, repression, and arrest. Everything was unnecessary. An unnecessary drain we created on the country's economy, because with Evo, we were doing well, and we will have withstood the pandemic better. Obviously, it will have hit us, but we will have endured it in a better way. On the other hand, social conflicts have affected the income of Bolivians, and that has not allowed us to remain unemployed at home during the pandemic. So, I would like to make that very clear. I make it clear that now, the same groups that last year said there was no fraud, they say it now. And there is no substance, not last year, not now, to think that there was a fraud. It is clear, Arce won in the first round with 55% of the votes, and not even uniting all the candidates on the right will have achieved the same as to go to a second round. Our victory was overwhelming, and that shows that neither last year nor this year there was a fraud. What do you think about Almagro from the OAS and the role of the United States in all of this? Bueno, Almagro fue <laughs> well, Almagro was the fundamental piece for the concept of fraud to be established. He was the person who said, yes, there was a fraud here, and therefore gave the green light to the right to do everything they did. Obviously, we and several organizations request that he resigns. The truth is that he should do it because with the clear evidence that last year there was no fraud, he has to assume responsibility and stop meddling in Latin American countries. It is true that the OAS was created for certain purposes, but that does not give the right to interfere in that way. The United States must begin to see that the countries have awakened and that we are no longer willing to submit to what they say, because we no longer see them as before, as saviors. We believe the United States must solve their own problems. They have terrible problems there, for example the racial issue and all, and they should stop sticking their noses in your countries and start improving their own situation. They should also see how they can extract their own resources, and not go after the resources of other countries, in this case Bolivia. The United States clearly stuck its nose in the listing issue, so it cannot continue to get rich at the cost of the sacrifice of Latin American people. So you're saying that in Bolivia there is an awareness of the domestic political issues of the United States, right? Sure, many of us have seen all the social conflicts related to Black Lives Matter. It is something that scares us. We see that racism is not only here in Bolivia, and that there is a bigger monster that is reigning in all countries. We are concerned. There are many Bolivians who are there and who may be suffering from racism. Being away in other countries must be very complicated, and even more so with this issue. For them, it must be very hard. Yeah, what troubles me as well is the alliance between the right racist forces. And so when they take power in all these countries, whether it's Brazil for a brief moment in Bolivia, uh, if Añez had been able to keep power, it would have been another front in this alliance of racist governments with Trump, with Bolsonaro, and even more distant countries like the Philippines, Hungary. There's an international aspect to this too. There are aware of each other and we have to form alliances on our end as well and that's why i'm very happy to be able to talk with you today thank you hey, thank you very much for allowing me to give my version as a bolivian i know you are going to reach people who have doubts about whether there was a fraud last year or perhaps this year as well now we can show that there was never a fraud and i thank you very much 
I am not a journalist, I am an ordinary person, a mother of a family, and I am very happy to give my version and show the world this version that everyone should know. I thank you very much. Thanks so much, Alejandro. I think now more than ever, we need internationalism and we need cooperation. We need to learn from the movements and successes of other countries. I think this will all be really interesting for everyone here in Gringo Land. Thank you so much for talking with us, Alejandra, and congratulations on the election. Muchas gracias. Saludos a todos, que estén muy bien, descansen. <laughs> That was really awesome. I didn't know what to expect. This is a friend of yours who I've never met before. And yeah, beyond just what she had to relate to us, I was really pumped up that we created a new connection across the world with someone who shares similar values. And I don't know, it just felt like the seed of something special. Yeah. Well, that's uh, what internationalism is all about, right? And it's, it's like I was telling you, it's at this point, I really get more inspiration from these global, from these Latin American leftist movements. I mean, certainly than I do from Biden, you know, from the Democrats here or even from Bernie. You know, I, for me, all the exciting things are, um, are going on in, in Latin America now, all the really exciting socialist and, and leftist movements. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're right about there being more energy. I mean, in Bolivia in particular, obviously, for, for these kinds of values. And, you know, part of the mission for us in this podcast is to, you know, try to engender that here in whatever way we can through this. Yeah, I think we have so much to learn, honestly, from Bolivia, from the experiences of leftists there and in Latin America generally. And we should be keeping an eye on that. But I thought that was a good question about the military. And it, you know, it remains to be seen what's going to be to come with the military. The MAS really needs to come in and clean house and, you know, get the, the Tridores out of there. Everyone who went to the school, the Americas needs to be out of there. Really needs to clean the place up like Chavez did after the um, military involved U.S. coup in 2002. You know, I would never argue that a state shouldn't have a military. You know, every every state needs to have the ability to defend itself. And so it's not an option for Bolivia to, you know, go a radically pacifist route as lovely as that sounds. I think it's a bit, you know, a bit dreamy, a bit quixotic, I guess. And, you know, they're the, the countries that do that, I mean, what, you got Costa Rica and you got Japan, but even Japan is sort of like, you know, in quotes, they really do have a force, an armed force if, if they need it, which they haven't really yet, but, you know, they, they have one. Yeah, and, and starting to build it up again, actually, under uh, Shinzo Abe. Yeah, exactly. Right winger they got there, but it's, yeah, and particularly with, uh, with Bolsonaro close by, I would think any um, even center left ruled country in, in South America would want to have a military. And it's I mean, it's it's a double edged sword, obviously, historically in these Latin American coups, the uh, military has really been the primary vector, you know, th that the United States has used to undermine these countries by um, working with rogue generals in these militaries and, and members of the military, of course, Pinochet in Chile. Argentina was a uh, military coup. And so it's, I mean, it's really something you got to keep in check. You know, Chavez, like I say, after the military coup in 2002, he came in and really just revamped the military. And 
you know, a, another interesting dynamic is that you've got primarily working class people in the military and in Venezuela and in all militaries, really. And I know during this coup in Bolivia last year, there were a lot of them. I talked to some of them who are like, you know, we stand with Evo, like we don't agree with this. But, you know, the problem is the generals who frankly are more, you know, upper class who can be bribed or convinced uh, I mean, that's also what happened in Iran in the coup that we sponsored there. That's what happened with right. the, this guy, Kalaman. Yeah. 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 And this guy, Kalaman. Oh, this guy, Kalaman in Bolivia was the guy who turned his oh, back Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about Iran. I was like, oh, shit, I got my name stuff. But yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I'm, I'm talking about Iran, too. It's <laughs> Iran, I believe, was uh, there were generals that were convinced to. As a Haiti. Mm, mm, yeah. But. Yeah. And then the role of lithium, we didn't even get to that in our last interview, but obviously no, Elon, Musk, we didn't. <laughs> Elon Musk, very unhappy right now, I would think. But that's definitely a function of this. You know, Evo called it a lithium coup. And of course, under the Moss, Bolivia was more amenable to China, more amenable to Russia, more amenable to signing deals with countries that you know the United States doesn't particularly like. But, you know, Bolivia has to I do mean, what's yeah, best for them. Like yeah, it's not like, you know, they're selling their lithium to China because China, China's influence over the Bolivian government via similar machinations and, and you know, engendering coups was successful. And so they've, they've tilted that way. No, China mm. just straight up gave them a better price. You know, uh, yeah. that, funny how that works, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was the same thing Fidel Castro was saying back in the day when, you know, there were when American reporters asked him, like, oh, well, why, why, are, you, why are you selling your sugar to Russia? He's like, because Russia's buying it. <laughs> you know, there you guys you have an embargo against me. I'd sell you my sugar if you'd buy it from me. But you have an embargo, so I'm selling it to Russia. Like, uh, yeah. the, the notion of, and, and basically, yeah, this is really us trying to enforce a favorable price at the end of the barrel of a gun. Yeah. You know, it, it's really, it's, it's not like, we're, we're doing anything in terms of uh, soft power here or, you know, maybe a political horse trading kind of machinations to maybe uh, get them to accept us buying it, even if the price is, is lower than they would like. I mean, this is really, you know, you sell it to us, rock bottom price. Don't you dare mm -hmm. use it to develop yourself and put, put you in a better position, you know, to, uh, to negotiate price. Yeah. Or we'll, we'll, we'll do what we've done in many other places and threaten the lives of your leaders and, you know, totally change your government to a structure that is more amenable to us. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the, you know, the aggression and sociopathy involved is, is, is really disconcerting. It really is. And this is, you know, it's a pattern we've seen over and over as soon as, you know, free market capitalism doesn't work to our favor you know, the guns and the tanks come out and it's, you know, there's always the role of these international corporations. It's famously in Chile with the coup against Allende, ITT, International Telephone and Telegraph Corporation, was in Nixon's ear. And they're like, you know, this guy Allende, he's nationalizing our copper interests. He's nationalizing the telephone system in Chile. You got to do something about this. You know, these things really play more of a role than people might think. I think it really is that cynical a lot of time, or these, these things definitely, you know, it's also geopolitics, it's also maintaining U.S. hegemony in Latin America and the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, substitute, you know, substitute ITT in Chile or United Fruit in Guatemala with 
mm-hmm. Tesla today. You know, all the details aren't really out really about what exactly the arrangement was this time, but Elon Musk did this amazingly candid and since deleted tweet where he was questioned about Bolivia by just some rando on Twitter who just put it to him and he said, we will coup whoever we want. I mean, putting yeah. himself in this first person plural of we will coup whoever we want. It was just incredible. And so who knows what, what, what the details of that will be like if they ever emerge. But I think it's a fair assumption to make that there is a similar arrangement now to ITT in Chile and United Fruit in Guatemala. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm sure uh, Elon will get high at some point and uh, let the rest of the story slip on Twitter as he is wont to do. But, you know, it's actually it's interesting about Cuba as far as Cuba selling their sugar to Russia into the Soviet bloc during the Cold War. You know, Che Guevara was actually not happy about that. He said that the Soviet Union was practicing their own kind of imperialism because they were really encouraging Cuba to really dedicate their economy primarily towards sugar and towards producing all this sugar, which, you know, they were able to do. But Che Guevara wanted to develop Cuba more thoroughly as an economic power. He wanted to diversify the country economically and and build up industry in other ways. When the Soviet Union collapsed, it was, I mean, that was obviously when you had the special period in Cuba. And it's, you know, you can only eat so much sugar. It's part of what really hurt them was that their economy really was just so dedicated to producing sugar. And that's a problem with Countries throughout the global south, it's a problem with Venezuela, unfortunately, the dependence on petroleum. It's a problem in other countries. And it's, you know, it's a major part of the imperialist and the global north versus global south dynamic is that these global south countries just don't have the kind of developed economies with kind of industry up the value chain. Of course, Bolivia has this lithium, but under Evo, they were starting to produce cars. They were talking about producing batteries. These were, and he said, you know, he promised it's, we're going to make Bolivians rich with this lithium. We're not just going to sell the raw material. We're going to make things with it and we're going to make money on this. So that is something that's very hard for the global South to do. And it's a reason why they're constantly under the thumb of uh, imperialist Western powers is because they are not able to industrialize their economy like that. Western powers would rather have the batteries in the cars produced in their countries because that creates more value for them. But Bolivia, yeah, their former Moss government, they nationalized lithium production in partnership with a German company. They were really going to, to, to use that to Bolivia's favor. And actually, you know, this, this effort to industrialize the lithium, that was a big part of what the economy, uh, economy minister and now president-elect Luis Arce was doing and wants to do. He wants to really, like I say, use this lithium for Bolivia's benefit. And it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's been a state-driven economic model. Of course, it's very much a developing country, Bolivia, and, and the poorest in South America. But it's kind of been the China model of development in a way in that it is tailored to the conditions of Bolivia. It's, it's socialism with Bolivian characteristics. They're still developing, and of course, they need foreign investment, they need foreign capital, and they exist within a capitalist world, and they can't change that on their own. But what they can do is have a state-driven form of development. For instance, the Teleferico company was a state company. Lithium was done through a state company. Petroleum was nationalized. So they can have the state-driven development and and really use these state-owned companies to further the economic development of the country instead of just profit for the elites, right? 
What, what you were talking about with the German company and the cars reminds me a lot of Brazil green technology mm. domestically, where you know they they got the companies. I think they were also European. I want to. I think it might have also been a German company to develop, help develop wind power for them. And you know, part of the deal was majority state ownership of the deal, as well as you know, a specifically outlined agreement of knowledge transfer, so that you know they 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 can eventually take off the training wheels, so to speak, and 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 keep it going on their own. And it sounds like Bolivia was on a similar track. Yeah, so that they can develop this knowledge and expertise on their own. It's, you know, again, it, it's the China model. These technology transfers. One of the really smart things that China did was they say, okay, you bring your factories here, but you have to give us access to this technology and this know-how and、uh, and training for people here in China. And it's, you know, of course, people like Trump and your nationalists and your right wingers. They say, oh, China stole our jobs. They're stealing our technology. No, it's the United States offered these things to China because of the neoliberal dynamic. They wanted to undermine organized labor in the United States, and they wanted cheaper labor. And you know, China realized this. You know, this greater capitalist world they exist within, and you know, because they're Marxists, they understand capitalism. That's what Marxism mostly is: is understanding capitalism. China was able to understand this dynamic, and they were able to get access to this technology and build their economy. And I, I, you know, Bolivia is trying to do the same thing. Brazil has tried to do that, but, and this is thanks to this economy minister, who, like I say, is the president-elect, Evo's economic minister, pursuing this state-driven development. His vice president, a guy named、uh, David Chokawanka, we talked about him a little bit with. That's、uh, a name.、Now. Yeah, it's. I gotta、uh, say. I, I'm not one usually. I, I know I, I got like you know a funny last name to most people, and I shouldn't throw stones, but yeah, it just reminds me a lot of Chumbawamba. I gotta say. <laughs> well, Chumbaw, I'm not sure the the origin of Chumbawamba, but Chakawanka <laughs> is very that's you know very indigenous name. That sounds. I think it might be one of the final bosses in the Donkey Kong games. I think. <laughs>、yeah. I'm not sure. You could be right. Chakawanka, very, very, like I say, very much an indigenous name. You have these famous indigenous names in Bolivia, like Kispe and Mamani, and David is is Aymara, like Evo himself. He is of indigenous descent, also kind of a populist, like Evo. Luis Arce is more of a mild mannered technocrat. Chakawanka, he worked in foreign affairs under Evo, and he is a little bit more of a fiery populist. Got Evo's personality in a way. And also his nationality, so it's you know it's a good representation of the MAS, which is a combination of leftist politics and economic development and kind of indigenous tradition, really lifting up the indigenous people of Bolivia. So the dynamic, and you know, it's really interesting the dynamic between these two people, between Arce and Chokawanka. These are the kind of this is the kind of color I feel like you don't get in so much. Western reporting about the situation, about Bolivia, and about other countries—they practice this parachute journalism, where these reporters come into the country, and you know they go to the wealthy neighborhoods, they stay in nice hotels in wealthy neighborhoods, they talk to wealthy upper class petty bourgeois people, and that those are the opinions they internalize, and that's what they report on. You know, when you saw this reporting in the New York Times about oh, AO is corrupt. 
most of the country doesn't like him. Well, no, it's really the upper class in the cities who don't like him and the white uh, European descended people who don't like him. But it's just another, you know, this is just another way that Western reporting fails Bolivia and that the reporting ends up being so inaccurate and kind of incredulous towards these right wing narratives. But it's something that it's something that needs to be addressed. I mean, it's and I experienced this dynamic when I was in Bolivia. You know, you'd hear from a lot of people, taxi drivers and others in the cities who didn't like Evo. And I went to El Alto, this kind of indigenous capital, which sits above La Paz. And I talked to a taxi driver there. He's like, yeah, we love Evo. It's, um, it was, it's kind of, he was an interesting guy. He was driving around a, a Russian Lada, a Soviet Lada, which I didn't know still existed. Wow, really? Yeah, like some 70s or 80s model uh, Lada. Dude, those things were made by hand. Did you know that? They were, um, there's a lot of their factories, people. like their factories had like dudes with freaking mallets and stuff, like hammering the doors onto the frames and stuff. It was insane. That's badass. I hope they were using like actual <laughs> like hammers and sickles to do it. That'd be cool. I'm not but, sure where the sickle comes in on car production, but yeah, I hope they found a place for it. Sure. That's true. It's, um, and he was just the nicest guy, this taxi driver, just the most humble and it's, you know, what I hear from people that I know from Bolivia, friends that I have from Bolivia, is that this indigenous population, you know, they have a real inferiority complex. And they, you know, you can talk to these indigenous people in the country and, and you know, a lot of times they won't even look you in the eye. They just look down on the ground. And it's, it's they have just really been treated in such a second class manner, you know, in a real kind of apartheid they existed under. And they really internalized this, unfortunately. Under Avo, they really started to, to regain their respect and their, their self-respect and to have a better view of themselves, which is just one of the really great things about Avo's presidency. And one of the things that should continue, the indigenous population actually makes up a majority of the population. So, I mean, they should be in control of things, you know, the country should be run in their interest. I mean, the country should always be run in the, in the interest of the working class. That's what we believe as socialists, but particularly when they make up the majority of the population, there's no excuse for them not to have their concerns met. Regarding the parachute journalism point, I mean, it's, it's just frustrating because you have these moments of profound embarrassment regarding their coverage, right? Like we had talked about before about how they had to, uh, this past summer in late June, basically write an article that wasn't a retraction, unfortunately, but basically amounted to a complete reversal to the position they had taken the previous fall because the facts hadn't borne out that, uh, the facts on the ground, what had happened, A, and B, how ruthless the Anya's government turned out to be, you know, really flew in the face of how they were talking about it in the previous fall. And it's like, absent these moments that just blatantly fly in the face of their reporting, they can go on for years in, in various places, just giving a, a, a generally false impression of, to an American audience of, what the political dynamic is in another country yeah. until something just blatantly blows up in their faces. Um, so it's really a shame. Uh, yeah, like, the, like absence this, this big thing, they can just keep on doing that in Bolivia and elsewhere and leave Americans with yeah, a false impression.
Yeah, you know, and it, I think it took a long time for the truth to come out in Chile, for the uh, the truth to come out in other places where they have been these coups. Um, and of course, you do have a local population who subscribes to these more right wing views. You've got a lot of people, you know, tragically to this day who still defend Pinochet and who defend the uh, dictatorship in Chile. Um, oh, and yeah. I think it, it can't be said enough just how much it really fucks up the um, just the politics as a whole in these countries and the entire political fabric of these countries to have military dictatorship, to have this kind of intervention and instability that's created by these situations. And it's just, um, it's, it's, um, it has to end. Well, that's, that's the irony of it because people who, people who do, uh, carry water for these kinds of dictatorships, you know, even decades out, like you're talking with Pinochet, will say things like, oh, well, you know, he, he kept, uh, he, he got the economy growing and he, uh, sort of, uh, brought stability. It's like stability born out of mass murder and repression is, yep. you know, is, is absolute injustice, period. Like, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be supporting a, um, an uneasy peace born out of profound lack of justice and righteousness. Yeah. Because you wouldn't stand for that in your own backyard, basically. No. You know, if, if, if uh, you know, if Americans were, were suddenly told that you know in the name of what economic stability uh you know we had to totally do away with civil liberties that everyone likes to trumpet so much about here people would lose their shit yep yep and it's the effect of these things is long lasting i mean you see now with these protests that have been going on in chile it's just a very in fact i think it was um the un who said that the oppression and the violence of the uh, police in Chile now matches the final days of the Pinochet dictatorship. It's that bad. And it's something that's persisted within the police, especially within the military in Chile, this authoritarianism, this rabid anti-communism, anti-leftism that exists there now. And it's, it's done real damage to the country. And, um, you know, thankfully, I, it hasn't taken root in Bolivia, you know, as we saw with this election, which is, um, mm -hmm. which is very satisfying. Um, but uh, how about that debate last night? Oh boy, how about it? Yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, hold on, let me just. I'm going to pull up my notes here, because it was so interesting that I need to look at my notes to remind myself what I felt about it. I guess I, you know, I was doing three yeah, or I mean, four other uh, things at the time, and debate was really at the bottom of the list. I paid a little bit of attention to it, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, so just some stray thoughts. I mean, uh, I was watching the uh, CNN uh, pregame or whatever the fuck they call it. I don't know. Uh, their their, their pre-debate coverage. And uh, they had, um, you know, a bunch of the standard faces you usually see on Anderson, there. Anderson Cooper was tailgating outside of the auditorium. He had like a barbecue grill going. Yeah, Van Jones did him a beer bong and everything. Um, yeah. No, it was, no, well, yeah, speaking of Van Jones, uh, I think he, he said something that I just profoundly, profoundly disagreed with, uh, mm. which is he said, 
that, you know, Biden being empathetic, Biden looking at the camera is his greatest strength. And I thought, no, 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 it's not. I mean, I remember mm. him at the first debate doing that and thinking, like, what are you doing looking at me? Like, he's he's there on stage with you, you know, like uh, and uh, his his uh, tugging at heartstrings statements when he when he would do that. I think they eventually backfired because Donald Trump is, you know, he he has like uh, a profound lack of intellectual intelligence. But in terms of just sort of an animalistic sense of status, of top doggedness, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's he is, you know, he's got a he, he's got a good ear for that tune. And, um, you know. Uh, he after a couple of times that Donald Trump uh, did that, uh, you know, looking at the you know looking at the camera and talking about you know the the husband or wife reaching across the bed to a person who's not there anymore, the empty seat at the kitchen table. Donald Trump called Joe Biden a you know quote typical politician for his around the table spiel. I mean a quote yeah. typical politician end quote for his around the table spiel. And and ended with, you know, you can do better than that. And Biden pretty much stopped after that because, you know, the the veil had been lifted. Whatever, whoever was kind of entranced by that, which, first of all, I think were very few people, if any. And I don't I just don't think um, I I don't know. Maybe I I don't know how plugged into to people who are gettable that's going to be. Uh, I, I, I just doubt that it is. I think people would rather see biden beats trump rather than appeal to them like mm-hmm. he's appealing to, to to the american people through the camera like they're uh like they're a child of uh of yeah. of uh of divorced parents is like you don't have to stay with your dad you know and and it's just uh it's uh, for for me it was just kind of like uncomfortable because i was like beat him you know like get get my you know my stepfather who puts cigarettes out on my arm out of the house. Don't like appeal to me, the 10 year old who can't do anything about it. You know what I mean? I, um, like beat him. You know what I mean? I'm just, you know, I I'm think... not particularly interested in hearing about Joe Biden's uh, kitchen table reach arounds. Like um, <laughs> it's just, it's so old school, this stuff, you know, it's so like nineties Clinton style. It's like, and that was the thing about Trump is that he, tore the veil and he, you know, he offers all the wrong solutions, obviously, but he really just, um, you know, cut through the bullshit and just, uh, just talked to people, um, directly and did yeah, not hide I mean, how much of an asshole he is. Yeah. Yes. He didn't hide how much of an asshole he was and he didn't even try to deny what there were just so many things where Donald Trump is bad for doing something, but we're supposed to be for biden but biden is just engaging the same in the same thing to a lesser degree so but biden can't really say that so what happens is they go back and forth about accusations like of corruption and things like that and it just goes back and forth and even though biden is you know better on that stuff he's still in it and and so you know he can't really argue effectively against it and so there are a lot of things that you know trump is really problematic on but he muddies the issue enough where, you know, he, mm. he muddied the issue on the coronavirus, uh, you know, to the point where you can't tell if he failed or if it's just a mess. Uh, you know, 
he, you know, uh, Biden can't outright deny uh, Trump's accusations about kickbacks. And so the accusations fly back yeah. and forth and it's just a wash. This is the same dynamic um, you had in 2016. It's, you know, you could say that Trump is obviously corrupt and horrible, but uh, I mean, almost down to the issue, you could say that there was a similar problem with Hillary, almost, you know, literally down to every issue uh, with any issue of corruption you have with Trump, you could find a, um, um, analogous one uh with the clintons and uh you know some extent yeah uh, of course. you see that with biden you know he re trump really is good at muddying the waters which which is far too easy to do with these um you know with these democrats these days yeah with, with these like you know, yeah with these creatures of the beltway yeah. yeah i mean look the best particularly when you don't have anything actually material to offer people you know yeah yeah i mean the, the for for me the 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 best argument uh biden made uh for himself that you know referenced something concrete and everything which uh, again my, my you know my problem with it is that it was all too brief was uh when he was referencing the recovery act and funding local communities firefighters teachers etc and talking about trump doing none of that in the face of this huge crisis we're in right now that that people People feel that, you know, people in working class communities, you know, they, they, they know their firefighters, they know what their kids' schools like, they know all these things, they know how things have deteriorated over the last six months, and uh, yeah. they have the feeling about it, and they don't know whether to blame Trump or not, and Biden referencing his efforts to address those things specifically and, and showing that they're possible, and this, and this president is just not doing that, was effective, yeah. but that moment just came and went. Um, yeah. It's, it's far too rare these days for politicians and, and for Democrats to actually talk about the poor and, and the working class. You know, Bernie was about the only one who did, but it's all about the middle class these days. It's all about how's the middle class doing, which it might as well be because so many of the poor don't vote. Um, you know, we've had historically low voter participation in this neoliberal era. The 90s, you had historically low turnout elections when Clinton was running. It's... Um, yeah, you know, it's a problem in the United States and in a lot of Western democracies because, I mean, you got to think there is a whole sector, you know, working class that is not being appealed to at all. And, you know, 2016, people in Detroit, people in Milwaukee, they knew that, you know, and a lot of them like we're not going to bother voting. Yeah. Oh, my, uh, Michael Moore was, you know. Uh, was really big on blasting that story, right? Yeah. About the, the the disaffected Midwestern voter who who very deliberately did not vote for Clinton. He talked about people filling out and checking off Democrat all the way down the ticket and leaving the presidential slot blank. Yeah, uh, that that was really and also, I mean, I, I can't believe Speaks that I only volumes. found this out through Michael Moore uh, from 2016. But, you know, talking about how Obama went to Flint and, you know, quote unquote, drank the water. I mean, that was if, if there was ever a, a crystallizing moment uh, to show how thoroughly uh, the party of the poor can, can can just totally abandon them. That was it. That was yeah. it. I mean, Rick Snyder and and uh, all of his underlings who participated in that should have been in fucking jail, man. I mean, yeah. they, they poisoned thousands of people. The problem is still not fixed. It didn't need to happen. And, you know, they can do that because they look at the executive and they see Obama and uh, the federal executive branch. They see Obama and they don't see someone who will hold them to account for it. And they were right. And yeah. so the people who were maybe waiting for him to come and do something about it, uh, you know, how are you going to look at them 
and say, no, 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 but the Democratic Party is better than the Republicans. You got to vote for them. I mean, forget it. Forget it. Yeah, it's insulting to people, uh, frankly. I don't it's, see... You know, the Democratic Party needs to actually be Absolutely. better instead of, like, haranguing people and, and shaming people for not, you better get out there and vote Democrat, you know, better tell everyone to vote Democrat. I actually offer them something, you know. And unfortunately, it's a lot of Obama's appeal, quote unquote, to the working class was seen to be superficial. Um, I mean, I remember in, in 2012, he, you know, they ran on the slogan, Osama bin Laden is dead and GM is alive. And and they did say General Motors, but it's by the end of his second term, you know, he was pushing TPP. He was pushing the kind of trade deals that he railed against in 2008. So, you know, I don't know. Absolutely. Of, I don't know how much of 2008 Obama was disingenuous. It probably was to a large extent or how much he just like got to Washington and decided he had to play the insider game. But I mean, um, what was uh, what, what was going to be? I mean, what, what, what was one of the biggest ads that like? You know, Romney never really had a huge chance in 2012, but what was the biggest ad that just crushed him? It was when Obama, uh, you know, um, made ads about Romney's record at Bain Capital yeah. of basically having a, a bust out business model of, uh, you know, leveraging, uh, buying troubled companies, leveraging them to the hilt and then reaping all the rewards while the thing just goes crashing. Yeah. And did it, it the, the ad itself is fucking brilliant because it took Mitt Romney's uh, pathetic rendition of American the Beautiful that he was singing on the campaign trail and put that over headlines about what he and his firm had been doing. But on the other hand, what the heck did Obama do about anything regarding that? He yeah. didn't do anything regarding that. And he, yep. and he traded on a, on, on a totally false notion that he was the guy to do something about it, that he was the guy maybe even more broadly, who has the public interest at heart. And he may have, in, you know, he worked around the edges, basically. You know, he, yeah. uh, he you know, rearranged the deck chairs on the Titanic. He, he did not fundamentally change things in a way that he claimed he would and never really governed with, with any apparent intention to do so. It was... Uh they did kind of run this class warfare campaign in 2012. And I think the Republicans picked up on that on some extent, you know, which is why they called Obama a socialist and all this other stuff. It was, it was a class warfare campaign without the actual follow through without the class warfare policy. And, you know, which is what we've seen again and again from Democrats. And so it's really no surprise that people become disenchanted and they don't come out to vote for you. And then you lose the Rust Belt. I mean, it's a dynamic that you're seeing with other center-left parties in France, with the Socialist Party, you're seeing it in the UK. It's just people feel like they've been just betrayed too many times by these formerly, you know, labor, you know, at least quasi-social democratic type parties. Um, but I mean, yeah, we're talking about a narrative that's been that's been proffered for, I mean, at this point, it's the better part of like 40 years in, in the case of the UK and the US. And, yeah. you know, that narrative, when it was new, was maybe appealing and got enough votes because it was new and people didn't really remember excesses of capital, which by that point were more than uh, 50 years old before, uh, you know, before, you know, uh, real welfare state reforms had taken hold in their countries. So there were enough new people who didn't know what, what, the, what the problems of dismantling uh, state institutions that look out for their interests would be. 
And then that narrative got rehashed and rehashed for 40 years with maybe initially, you know, notion of, oh, you know, it just takes time, right? You know, to, to, to reap the benefits of these changes. You know, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're, we're 40 years in. People just don't buy it anymore. Yeah. People just don't buy it anymore. And yeah. their refusal to, to um, you know, to move where the people are going is, um, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, that, that, that's where we're going now with the, with the cabinet Biden picks, you know, to talk a bit about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll end on that. Um, I haven't been paying a ton of attention to this. I saw it reported, I think it was in Politico, they were questioning whether, um, whether Bernie was going to have some place in Biden's cabinet. I would not expect that to happen. And even if he did, no, you know, how much power would he have under a Biden administration? I don't think it would, I don't think you would want it, even if it did happen. No. Uh, so the, the story that uh, that I came across was uh, one in Politico from a few days ago. Let me see if I can just read the headline so people can. Yeah. Biden eyes GOP candidates for cabinet slots yeah. uh, on Politico by uh, Megan Casella and uh, Alice Miranda Olstein. Uh, check out that story. Uh, basically, you know, the so the, the article has, you know, the Biden spokesperson saying, quote, a diversity of ideology and background is a core value of the transition. Uh, they talk about how Cindy McCain is on the transition team. Cindy yeah. McCain. Uh, yeah. They mention uh, they mention five names. Uh, well, the, the article mentions four names, but I also heard about another in another article. But the the five names in total from this article and the other one are Meg Whitman of uh, eBay and Quibi fame. Quibi, if you don't know what it is, I wouldn't blame you because it's only been around for six months and it's already dead. It was going to be a mobile-only nice. streaming service, you know? Sounds great, right? Well, so that's what I want. Who wants to, you know, sit at home and, and watch it actually on a nice TV and, like, but John, rather John, be hunched John, over my phone? It's, it's, it'll, it'll be like Netflix on your phone, you know? You, that wouldn't thing want that, that you can totally do already? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fucking brilliant. Brilliant. Except we'll make it only there. We'll make it only there. Love It'll it. be brilliant. It's like, it's like if you had uh, a car, but like uh, the engine only works when you take it on the freeway. Right. So everywhere else you just like push it around or it just like sits around. And then like if you somehow manage to get it on the freeway, then you can. I don't know. That's a shitty thank, analogy, but it no, makes thank, just as much sense as Quibi, for, quite frankly. Thank God we have this. Uh, yeah this capitalist uh, innovation in our country. Yeah, okay, I don't, yeah, so none of these people that I'm about to name have been uh, uh, like pointed to particular positions, but Meg Whitman, I don't care where she's put, she is there to look after the interests of the industry she came from, period. She's there to grease yeah. the wheels on more media consolidation deals and I don't know, maybe like uh, maybe even further entrench the, the the relationship between the Pentagon and Hollywood. I don't know what she's up to, but I don't you know, I, I have no faith there. Uh, John Kasich. This is the name from the other article is also being considered for the cabinet. Uh, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker. I'm not going to claim that I know very much about him. I also don't know very much about Charlie Dent, other than he's a retired Republican representative and has been a lobbyist for the last two years. And Jeff Flake, uh, the you know the guy who's portrayed himself as a you know as a never Trumper over the last four years, basically. Or I don't I don't know if he in 2016 was already against Trump, but you know he's been he's been making himself putting himself out there recently as like oh, we we gotta push against this stuff and like you know like trying to overtly 
um, juxtapose himself with the Trump wing of the party, which is basically the entire party. And I mean, it's, it's just this list is just baffling. I mean, Jeff Flake has been in the pocket of the Koch brothers for a very, very long time. His campaigns were funded by Donors Trust, which is, uh, oh no, I'm sorry, Club for Growth, which was uh, started by a lobbyist named Stephen Moore, takes a lot of money from the Koch brothers and happily gives it to Jeff Flake. He's a climate change denier. I mean, there's nothing to like about this guy. What, what, what is a, interesting about this guy that the uh, Biden administration is interested in him? And what I think it is, is that it just goes back to this uh, ongoing, this longstanding popularity of this like team of rivals bullshit mm. that got so popular uh when obama became president i mean it got popular oh, first there was, yeah first there was the book that doris kearns goodwin wrote and whatever and then obama said he really liked it and so that really you know made the books fly off the shelves and made her more even more of a household name and uh you know I mean, his, and every time he would pick a republican to do anything like oh yes team of rivals team of rivals Let's, it's just a bunch of nonsense. Let's 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 keep in mind this team of rivals kind of concept uh, comes from Abraham Lincoln's cabinet during the Civil War, a war that Abraham Lincoln almost lost, that he famously like struggled to win for years and well, years, it, and you know, and it should, certainly didn't help that his cabinet, you know, was full of people who were constantly just at each other's throats. I mean, they were they were rivals with each other, but not on the major, you know political issues that they knew they were there to tackle. There was no fucking anti-abolitionist in the cabinet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, but I think one of the best takes ever on, uh, on this, uh, on this, uh, you know, horribly damaging, you know, middle brow intellectual book, unfortunately, uh, comes from Thomas Frank. He has an essay on, uh, uh what, uh, what this team of rivals and also like the Lincoln movie by Steven Spielberg and then its effect on American politics. And this is what he has to say. To a modern day Washington grandee, what assembling a team of rivals means is a glorious thing, an election with virtually no consequences. No one is sentenced to political exile because he or she was on the wrong side. The presidency changes hands, but all the players still get a seat at the table. The only ones left out of this warm bipartisan circle of friendship are the voters who wake up one fine day to discover what they thought they'd rejected wasn't rejected in the least. And all in the name of Abraham Lincoln. Thanks for that, Abe. I think it's <laughs> it's exactly it. That's yeah. exactly it. He freaking nails it. The Biden I mean, cabinet will need to be dragged, kicking and screaming like a child towards the future that they claim to want. And it's up to us. It's up to us to make sure to make take more action now more than ever it's, with this administration to live up to the expectations that they have set. It's it's an excellent point. I mean, um, who is the constituency for Meg Whitman? I mean, presumably the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies. But that's you know she doesn't speak for a lot of actual Americans. I mean, certainly not. I mean, literally, what she's Americans. famous for as of late is this stupid fucking quitty thing. That's what she's mm. famous for right now. <laughs> right. And famous so, for and, failing. And, her, and just laying yeah. off, apparently, just a ton of people when she was at HP. Just thousands of yeah. people. Oh, um, yeah. Well, you know, that cuts costs, doesn't it? Um, I, you know, you love like, to have uh, avowed enemies of the working class in our political cabinet. What, what this means for us is that we're in this frustrating position of having to explain to people that, yeah, immediately after he's elected, we need to advocate and um, 
you know, mobilized in a way that is frankly unprecedented if we're going to address any of these looming crises effectively. I mean, I, I don't really want to imagine what another four years of inaction on climate policy, uh, education reform, healthcare, or or poverty reduction will lead to. Uh, yeah. I, I don't. I, I can barely fathom it because you know when you have a country with people as rich as they are in this country uh, and people getting poorer and poorer on the other side, you end up in situations like in Mexico or in Brazil where you know the desperation rises and crime rises with it and you you have these horrifying phenomena of like people getting kidnapped in the street in, in Sao Paulo to such a degree that everyone who can afford it there zooms around the city via helicopter to avoid even ever touching yeah. the ground it just you know? walls themselves that, that, off that's you know? the kind of future we can expect you know it, it, this yeah. is what inequality unaddressed leads to and i you know i don't mean to like totally excuse uh, such heinous crimes but it's just a reality that uh, as you immiserate people, these are the kinds of things that can happen. Uh, this country you know, th th this is what happens when a society doesn't care to take care of itself. The country is really getting hollowed out uh, in you know, anywhere other than the uh, kind of wealthier enclaves. It's becoming a third world country, particularly in, in parts of the South where I'm from. You have got, I think it was a UN mission to parts of the South where they said it was basically third world conditions in some places with the lack of infrastructure and the, just the poor state of the infrastructure. And um, it's, yeah. Please listen to this podcast, uh, you know, like and subscribe, all that good stuff. And, you know, keep an eye out for the kinds of guests we're going to have. I'm pumped to have, you know, the people that we know in the activists and organizer community to come here in our space and share their experiences and their insights into what can be done. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's what we need to do. We need to actually build this, uh, we need to build power on the left working class power. And, and then from there, I just think we need to, uh, pursue whatever strategy ends up being most strategic. Um, you know, which I think means like electing leftists when we can, um, you know, we just need to do whatever it takes to build left power. And I think to use the platforms that we have and, uh, and electoral politics is one of those platforms um, to uh, create the change and to create the kind of narrative for the change that we need. Um, so it's, um, yeah, I think that's about all I have to say at this point about fucking boring electoral politics in this country. I wish we had politicians like Evo Morales, man. <laughs> Fucking sucks. Jeez. Give me, I give mean, me a got, Hugo you know, Chavez. We, we got. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm already happy with who we have. Sort of, you know, we don't have anyone at the tippy top like that. But you know, I'm, uh, I'm already uh, that much more optimistic now that we have an emerging class of uh, state reps across the country, of uh, representatives at the national level in Congress. Uh, we need, I think, more, more senators, maybe, and you know, a real, yeah. you know, a cabinet pick or a president as well. But those people at that federal level, uh, especially the ones who have just recently been elected, like maybe Jamal Bowman. Yeah, I, uh, I'm really, I'm looking forward to 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 what they can do because they're they they don't play around, you know. Uh, and I, I have a lot of faith in their abilities. 
Yeah, we're getting some good people in there. And I, I think, uh, you know, we've even seen some people who actually participate in organizing within DSA, people like Julia Salazar, who are um, legitimately pretty good. And, um, you know, I think in, in Congress, I think I can unambiguously say that uh, Rashida Tlaib is pretty good. Ilan Omar is good on imperialism. So it's a process. And, you know, we use these positions, I think, for is, you know, for a platform as much as anything else, kind of try to raise consciousness. Yeah, I mean, that. so that's the silver lining. But that, you know, e even those gains were made with uh, a lot of push. Like, if we wait for this to sort of just, you know, by osmosis, just kind of, uh, just kind of uh, happen uh, at the pace that maybe one might expect, uh, you know, a, a, a if, if the shift is too gradual, we're in trouble because of the timing of the crises we face that is, yeah. uh, you know, there's a short fuse on a lot of this stuff, particularly climate change. And all other issues are kind of, you know, we talk about other issues like they're important and I do as well. And part of that is that I don't want to always have it on my mind that, uh, you know, climate change is going to wreck things in as little as 10 years, but that is the reality. And everything else in the face of that, I mean, it's, 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 uh, you know, we're talking, uh, you know, Armageddon stuff, you know, like, you know, this is the, this is the, the cataclysmic event. This is it. This is it. And, uh, you know, and everything else, everything else is to fall by the wayside. I mean, to just go back to, if I could just go back to the, to the debate for a second, that, that was one thing that I was so surprised that like, you know, B Biden talked about the urgency of climate change, uh, you know, and needing to get off fossil fuels, didn't talk about the wildfires, didn't talk about the floods, uh, didn't talk about the droughts, didn't talk about uh, any of these really serious, um, you know, immediate like act of God uh, effects. Uh, instead, he talked about, you know, uh, living somewhere that is polluted and, and what that's like, which is also good. But, I mean, you're not going to talk about how serious this already is. I don't know. Yeah. That didn't do it for me. It didn't do it for me. Maybe parts of Latin America can be saved. And, uh, you know, the Atlantic Ocean can just swallow up uh, most of the United States and take uh, shitty politicians along with it. Um, we got to know. We got to end on a more optimistic note than that, right? I keep trying to take us there, and you're dragging me down, man. Yeah. Um, well, okay. No, it's whatever. We got the positivity in there, but, you know, maybe... Bolivia, things, news coming out of Bolivia, very positive. Maybe a gloom and doom uh, note is not so inappropriate and will engender a, uh, you know, a kind of uh, stiff sobriety... Uh, about <laughs> about what we face. Yeah. Um, so there. Gloom and, do gloom and doom isn't always bad. See how I flipped it? Yeah. People are gonna, um, I don't know. We have a few more hurricanes, you know. We, we lose one or two uh, major American cities to natural disasters. It's People are gonna wake up any minute now. People are waking up. Uh, <laughs> still bringing us down. Um <laughs> Things are going to get better. I can feel it. It's going to happen. All right. We got to do it. We it's going to get better if we do it. It'll get better if we do it. And this show is to have people who are doing it. 
and to show you that you can do it too. There you go. All right. Si se puede. I think that's about a good place to end it. Yeah. Thanks as always, David. Hey, no problem, John. It was great. Ciao. All right. Bye, dude. Nos informan en este momento que ahora mismo el Departamento de Estado de los Estados Unidos acaba de anunciar la expulsión del embajador de Bolivia de su territorio. Bueno, nosotros comenzamos desde este momento a evaluar las relaciones diplomáticas con el gobierno de los Estados Unidos. Acabo de hablar con el canciller. Y para que Bolivia sepa que no está sola, tiene 72 horas. A partir de este momento, el embajador Yankee en Caracas para salir de Venezuela. Salam Aleikum. Ojalá que algún día 